If you would go with me this morning to the final chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, our focus today is going to be on verses 17 through 20. As Paul is bringing his letter to the Roman Christians to a close, he has been uh, extending some commendations as well as some greetings. He commended to the church in Rome, Phoebe, who is a faithful sister and servant of the Lord. And uh, she was most likely the one who was uh, carrying the letter of Romans to the church there. And uh, then he sends greetings to Christians whom he knows personally or those whom he has heard about. And he wants to personally greet who are there in the city of Rome. And so he extends personal greetings to them. And then as we move into verse 17, Paul does something which many commentators see as rather abrupt of a transition. And he exhorts them and warns them about the possibility of false teachers in the church in Rome. And some have been a little bit confounded by the the quick shift from commendations, personal commendations to people and greetings to this exhortation against false teachers. But I think one, one possibility for it is that Paul is in fact writing these words, verses 17 through 20, with his own hand. And that Paul wanting to express to them something very, very urgent and very important actually picks up the, the pen himself and writes the letter. Many of us think that Paul personally wrote with pen and papyrus all of his letters. Most likely he had what's called an amanuensis or a scribe, a secretary, if you will, and he would dictate the, the letter and the amanuensis or the scribe would write the letter. In fact, we have him named personally in Romans in verse number 22 when it says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. And so it's authored by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but Tertius is the one who is actually doing the copying down of the letter. But some think that in verses 17 through 20, Paul actually picks up the pen himself and pens this personal urgent exhortation to them to watch out for false teachers. And one reason that some think that is because of the the benediction that comes at the end of verse 20. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you, which is something that you would normally see at the very end of the letter. So Paul perhaps writes this paragraph and then Tertius picks the pen back up and finishes a few closing greetings and closing benediction. And another reason why some think this is that Paul does this at least in one other letter we know, and that's the letter of Galatians where at the end, Paul says specifically, you can see by my own, that I've written this with my own hand. And probably referring to that last portion of Galatians. So that may be one explanation for why we have this kind of sudden shift from greetings to warnings about false teachers. Because we really haven't, throughout the whole letter of of the Romans, seen a whole lot about false teachers. There is, uh, it's certainly been a very clear and extensive explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout Romans. 
but really not a, a whole lot of talk about false teachers like we see in some of other of Paul's letters. And so many think then that, that the false teachers had not yet reached Rome, or at least he's not aware of any that have yet come to Rome specifically to undermine the work of the gospel there. But he knows of their work in other places. And he knows that probably before long, there will be some who will try to come to Rome and try to pervert the work of the church there, the work of Christ. And so he's seen what has happened in other places and other churches. And so in closing his letter, he wants to just remind them to be vigilant and to be on guard against the possibility of false teachers coming to push them aside from the true gospel that he has just labored to explain to them and to defend. And so he says to them in verse number 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you for your wisdom and your truth. And we thank you for your servant, Paul, that you used in a mighty way to proclaim the gospel, to lay a foundation for many churches in many cities to be built. We thank you for his zeal for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here in this in these few words that we've read this morning, we see his desire to protect and to defend that gospel in front of the possibility, the threat of false teaching. Lord, remind us that we face a similar threat in this age. In every era of your church, Father, we face the threat of false teachers. And so there's an ongoing need for us as your people to be vigilant and to watch out for those that might seek to uh, steer us aside from the truth of the gospel. Lord, help us to learn and uh, be encouraged and challenged by these words of Paul today. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Paul's exhortation to the Christians in Rome is threefold in this paragraph. First, he urges them, don't let false teachers destroy the work of the gospel in your church. Don't let false teachers destroy the work of the gospel in your church. Now remember, Paul has not been there yet to the city of Rome. He wants to go there. He has expressed plans to go there and then to go on from there to Spain. So he's not been there, but he knows of them. And he knows that they have a credible testimony of belief in the gospel. In fact, he even says in, this, in these verses that he, I have heard, and everyone has heard, about your obedience. So he knows that they have believed and that they are seeking to follow Christ and his words. But one of the things that he is concerned about is that 
the gospel that has the gospel foundation that has been laid there and that is being built on and a, a mature growing congregation is being built there. He does not want that to be messed up. He does not want that to be uh, destroyed by the work of false teachers. And so he does what he can only do from a distance, and that is to warn them, to warn them and to exhort them to be on guard. And so he says, don't let false teachers destroy the work of the gospel in your church. And there are really three ingredients to accomplishing that, that he mentions in verses 17 through 19. One of them is vigilance. One ingredient to make sure that false teaching does not destroy the work of the gospel in the church is vigilance. He says, watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Watch out for them, which means be on guard, right? Be on guard. Why? Because they're out there. Now, it's very possible that the, these false teachers have not yet made their way to Rome or have not yet tried to infiltrate this, the churches in Rome, but he knows they're out there and he's encountered them. He has done gospel battle with them, if you will, in other places. In other places, in other letters, he mentions these false teachers by name. In some places, he mentions very clearly their, their false teaching and their characteristics. So there's not a whole lot of specifics here about what they're teaching. So many think that they haven't gotten there yet. But he knows that false teachers are not too far behind the proclamation of the true gospel. And that's something to keep in mind is that false teachers generally don't try to go about laying a foundation for themselves. False teachers are essentially squatters. They, they try to come into something that's already been built and they try to take it over. And so you have to be on guard against false teachers because they will follow the work of the true gospel and then they'll come behind that and with a, a few tweaks here and a few tweaks there, a few turns of phrases, they will twist and distort what the truth really is. And so you've got to be on guard. You've got to be vigilant about the possibility that they're there and can possibly infiltrate your church. And, and the idea of watching out, when he says watch out for them, is not just looking. Not just looking, but also pointing them out and identifying them. Other translations have here, mark them, which is the idea of, of not only seeing them, but identifying them and putting a mark on them pointing them out to others. It's almost the idea of a watchman on a tower. If a watchman on a defense tower is looking for the approaching enemy, he's not just going to be looking if he sees them. He's going to go beyond that, right? If he sees them, what's he going to do? He's going to tell others, right? He's going to point them out. He's going to say, here's the direction they're coming from. Here's how many there are. Here's what they look like. So he's looking for them, but he's also then, if he sees them, he's going to identify them and he's going to mark them out. That's the idea here is be on the guard, be looking out for them, and then mark them, identify them, point them out so that other believers in Christ can be on their guard as well. And he says, watch out for them because they cause divisions and they put obstacles 
in your way. Division and strife is one of the devil's chief means of destroying the work of God. And we've seen it happen in in many, many churches, haven't we? Not only local churches, but even whole denominations have been split, have been divided over teaching. Over right teaching versus false teaching. And Satan loves to do this. He loves to come in and he loves to divide and conquer. So if he can come in and through this false teaching, through this deception, if he can drive a wedge between brothers and sisters in the Lord, he knows that he can split and destroy that congregation. Don't let divisions come in. Don't let people come in and cause divisions by false teaching. He says specifically, in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. So, I mean, he means by that the gospel, right? So teaching that is contrary to the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel that he has laid out in Romans, any teaching that is contrary to that, don't let them come in and divide you. Don't let them come in and cause you to stumble. The the word here, obstacle, is literally a stumbling block. And in some contexts, and perhaps even here in this verse, the idea of a stumbling block is used to convey those who stumble and fall into apostasy. And that is walking away from and straying from the path of orthodoxy, of true gospel belief and faith. Falling away from the faith, if you will. Don't let people come in, false teachers come in and divide you. Don't let them come in and lay traps for you, stumbling blocks for you that will cause you to fall away from the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in other letters, we know that Paul has very strong words for those that would seek to distort the gospel. In Galatians, he says, if anyone comes to you preaching another gospel, a different gospel, let that person be accursed. Let that person be condemned. So he is very serious about protecting the truth of the gospel of Christ. And we need to remember that the gospel is good news. The gospel is good news, which means the gospel is about information, isn't it? The gospel is about truth. The gospel is about words. We have to be defenders of words. We have to be defenders of truth. We have to be defenders of information. The good news. Because there are are some who are going to try to come in with false news. With false information. With false facts. With distorted teachings about the gospel. So be on guard. Vigilance. The second ingredient to not letting false teachers destroy the work of the gospel is separation. He says at the end of verse 17, keep away from them. Keep away from them. Have nothing to do with them. So if false teachers try to come to you, don't support them, don't encourage them, don't welcome them into your fellowship. John says in the letter of 2 John, don't bid them Godspeed. Don't help them or support them on their way. Have nothing to do with them. Keep away from them. Keep your distance from them. 
And some would say, well, how, how does that fit into when Christ says, love your enemies? Or when Christ says, judge not, that you be not judged? Well, when Christ says, judge not, that you be not judged, Christ is not throwing out all discernment, is he? He's not, he's not throwing out all judgment. What Christ is warning against there is self-hypocritical judgment in which we try to help other people and point out the faults in others when we have many of our own problems and faults. So Christ is not throwing out the idea of all discernment or judgment. In fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, judge with honest judgment. So Christ expects his people to be discerning, to be judging in the sense of distinguishing between that which is true and that which is false. What about loving our enemies? Well, we can keep away from and we can mark out false teachers without being openly caustic or hostile toward them. We can still, in a, in a manner that is worthy of Christ, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, in a manner of peace and of calmness, we can say, this is wrong. What you are saying, what you are teaching is false. It is heretical. And we are not going to fellowship, associate with you. You can do that without being hostile and caustic toward them. So you can still show a general goodwill to all men without necessarily helping and supporting and welcoming in false teachers. Why would we not want to welcome them in? Why, why should we stay away from them? Because they're very slippery and deceptive. And that's, the th- that's where the third ingredient comes in, and that is discernment. So we need vigilance. We need separation. We need to separate from them, keep our distance from them, and not allow them in our fellowship. And we need discernment. We need discernment. He says in verse 18, For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. So he, he marks out their true motivations. Their true motivation is not the glory of Christ. Their really ultimate motivation is their own pleasure, their own appetites, what they desire. And that, that could be fame, developing a name for themselves. It could be popularity. It could be wealth. They want to fleece the flock, if you will, and gain wealth for themselves. They may be coming in just to, in fact, some of the false teaching involved more licentious, immoral lifestyle. So they may be coming in trying to pervert the gospel for their own desires and appetites. But Paul says essentially they're serving themselves, essentially they're idolaters, and they're worshiping their own desires. And you have to watch out for them, you have to be discerning. And here's why you have to be discerning. Because they use smooth talk and flattery. And they deceive the minds of naive people. Here's the thing you have to know about false teachers. They are the nicest people that you will ever meet. False teachers don't come with horns sticking out of their their heads, right? In fact, Jesus says the devil comes looking like, appearing like an angel of light, doesn't he? So when false teachers come, they're not immediately 
noticeable because they act right, they talk right, they dress right, they look the part, they use, they, they're very eloquent, use smooth, flattering speech. Some of them are excellent communicators that in terms of being able to gather a crowd and move people through their words are some of the best that the world has seen. And so they're very good at drawing a crowd around them. They're very good at gathering a following and they're very good at convincing people. Essentially, they're salesmen for their wares, which is false. And so what's the lesson for us don't be naive, right? Don't be naive because they will use flattery, they'll use deception, they'll use smooth words, eloquence, they'll use their personality, they'll use anything that they can to draw a following to themselves, but the ones that they usually sweep up into their fold are those that are less discerning, those that are naive. And so the, the lesson, the implied lesson here is don't be naive. Work hard at being discerning. What does that mean? It means we need to know the truth, right? We need to know the truth. We have to be able to spot false teaching when it presents itself. And I'm concerned that the church of Jesus Christ as a whole, and even I think many within our own congregation, Eastside Baptist Church, do not have yet a fully developed ability to discern between what is right and wrong. To discern between true teaching and false teaching. And I will tell you that that ability is becoming more and more difficult to learn, to develop that skill in our culture, because we are increasingly becoming a culture that cannot process words. We are becoming a less and less literary culture, meaning we are losing the ability to read and to study and to process arguments and the flow of thought and see how one thing leads to another. We are a culture of sound bites. And so we watch television and television is mostly one-liners and sound bites. Even our politicians, they come on and they're asked questions, uh, supposed experts in government affairs, they're asked questions and they give their memorized sound bites. They, they give their little spiel in response to any question, whether that's the answer to the question or not, right? They give their little sound bite. What is Twitter other than just sound bites? Most Facebook updates, they're just sound bites. There's, there's no extended argument. There's no extended discussion. It's hard for us as a people to follow an argument, any kind of a lengthy argument. And so we're learning the ability to use discernment when it comes to words. That's a concern for Christian discipleship. We need to as Christians, for the sake of Christian discipleship, read books. 
We need to read books and be able to read all the way through a book and read all the way through. And I'm not talking about a fluffy novel because those are easy to read. I'm talking about being able to read a book that is teaching you something and being able to read and follow the train of thought and be able to, if someone makes a statement and then puts a verse in parentheses behind it, be able to go to that verse and not just look up the verse, but read the whole page where they put that verse in parentheses and see, is this verse in its context supporting the statement that this author just made? That's a lot of work, isn't it? But that's what Paul is calling us to here when he says, don't be naive. And just for the sake of discipleship, we need to be able to read books and extended arguments. And if you need to read a fiction novel to be able to do that and get into the habit of being able to read books, then read a fiction novel. And there's nothing wrong with reading fiction. It's a good form of entertainment. But we need to go beyond that to reading other books that are specifically teaching, giving us information, helping us to grow and develop. But we need that ability to be able to discern truth and error and be able to read and understand words and arguments and see and make fine distinctions, make fine nuanced distinctions between what is right and what is wrong. Because that's what false teachers do. False teachers don't come and say ridiculously outlandish statements. False teachers come and take this true sentence and change a word or two, a a slight, subtle change or nuance that changes it from true to false. That's That's why we need to be so discerning and on guard. So Paul says, don't let false teachers destroy the work of the gospel in your church by being vigilant, by separating from them, keeping your distance from them, and by being discerning. In verse 20, here's Paul's second exhortation. In your vigilance for the gospel, take hope in the promise that God will ultimately crush Satan. That's a great hope, isn't it? In your vigilance for the gospel. So remember, you're fighting against falsehood. You're fighting against error. You're fighting against deception, which the Satan is the father of lies. So in your defense of the gospel, take hope in this. God will ultimately defeat your enemy. God will ultimately crush Satan, the father of all lies, under his feet. He says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And I think the idea there of soonness is imminency. That this will happen ultimately at the end of the age when Christ returns and Christ achieves complete victory over devil, over the devil and inaugurates his kingdom in this world. That, that coming victory is soon. It could be today. It could be this week. It is imminent. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And I think that there is an intentional reference, allusion here back to Genesis 3.15. When God said to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
meaning the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Who is the seed of the woman? Ultimately, it's Jesus Christ, and he will crush the head of the serpent in complete and total victory. That's what Paul promises here. So in your vigilance for the gospel, remember this promise, God will win. There's an old gospel song, heard quartet sing it a long time ago, but I've read the back of the book and we win, right? God wins. God achieves victory. He will crush the head of the serpent. Finally, Paul exhorts, by way of this final benediction, remember that we can ask for and receive the grace of Christ. Remember that we can ask for and receive the grace of Christ. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And I think with that simple benediction, it's really a prayer wish. He reminds us that ultimately we depend upon the grace of God for everything, don't we? And that in our fight for the gospel, in our defense of truth, in our vigilance against false teachers, and holding on to the hope of ultimate victory, we remember that we are supported by the grace of God. That the grace of God is that which makes us stand. And so pray for it. That's really what he's doing here for these Christians. He's praying for the grace of, of the Lord Jesus be with you. It's a, it's a wish, a benediction. He's asking God to give them that grace. We too can ask that grace for us and for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's a reminder that that is the grace on which we need to depend. And so be vigilant. Be vigilant for the sake of the gospel. Rest in the promises of God and call out for the grace of God to support you in your walk with Christ and in your defense of the gospel. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth that you have revealed to us. You are the truth. All truth ultimately comes from you. Your son, the Lord Jesus, whom you sent into the world, he is the way, the truth, and the life. We're thankful, Father, that you have given us the spirit to indwell us and to help us in this quest for discernment to lead us into truth. Lord, give us your grace. May we depend upon your grace. May we trust and hope in your promises. And Lord, give us the, the, the eyes. Give us the, the perseverance, the vigilance to learn and grow in the gospel and to defend it against those that would seek to undermine it. And Lord, we ask this all ultimately for your glory and your honor and that you might be exalted within your church. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.